looking out in the audience and seeing how many people are smiling at me. That was the encouragement that I was smiling. And I'm happy to see that some of you are smiling because that encouraged me to go like five minutes longer this morning. So that's always a good thing. Anyway, good morning. Good to have all of you with us this morning. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that we're happy that you're here as well. Let me just get right into some things that you need to know about. Let me first of all just remind you of our barbecue in the park on June the 12th. It's going to begin at 4 p.m. and it's going to be at the pavilion in Kleiner Park. Uh, it's right beside where all the, uh, the playground is. It's a wonderful place to get together and have a great barbecue and we're going to each other's company. And then we're going to have this little thing here happen. Brother, 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 acapella, acapella, it sounds good to me. Sing it soul to soul, soul to soul. Brother, 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 acapella, acapella, it sounds good to me. That's going to be pretty cool, huh? Yeah, so we're going to get together at 6 o'clock, and we're going to spend some time together singing with one another. There's going to be a few singing groups from sister congregations and maybe even from our, our own, but we're basically going to come together as a congregation and just spend some time singing. And so I would really want to encourage you to set that, those hours aside for the barbecue and, and then for our time of singing at the park. One of the things that's absolutely amazing about the church is a cappella singing, and we really sing well as a congregation, and I really do believe that it has a, a way of reaching out into the community and planting some incredible seeds. There's several ways that, you know, the message of God is, is communicated. One is through preaching the gospel. Others is by uh, teaching classes, written material. But one that sometimes we don't think about as being an evangelistic tool is that of singing with our voices, the messages that we share. And so I really want to encourage you to be encouraging your friends and your neighbors to come to the park at 6 o'clock for that, that singing. And then, of course, just be talking up, up among ourselves. It's going to be a great time together with one another and then of course you recall that at the beginning of the year i began talking to you about our congregational retreat that's going to happen on august the 5th through the 7th well this morning is our launch date we're launching it and starting to really promote this thing and and start trying to encourage you to be thinking about taking part in the in in this congregational retreat it begins on a friday night all day saturday and then of course sunday and we'll break around lunch one o'clock sunday afternoon and, and begin to come home but out in the foyer you'll find that there is uh, a number of things at the registration table and so you can start registering to uh, set up a place for you to uh, stay there let me just share with you some of the things it's going to be a, at trinity pines in cascade uh, idaho it's going to be it's an absolutely gorgeous place it's going to be a time for us to to rest and reflect and to think about our relationship that we have with God and, and with one another. And that's why we have called this theme uh, rooted in relationships, our relationship with God and then our relationships with one another. This is a picture of the lodge. As you look south into an incredibly beautiful uh, meadow, it looks over the Payette River and some other things, but it's absolutely gorgeous inside that thing. It's got a fireplace that has a two-sided fireplace. It's, it's great. There's an area there for, get co for getting coffee and juices and, and things like that. Lots of places to sleep. There are over 400 beds that are available at the camp, okay? And so there's a, there's a place for everyone. And a lot of them are bunk beds, but there are so many beds that probably no one will have to sleep on a top bunk unless you just want to do that. 
uh, you're going to be able to sleep on the bed. But we have three cottages that are there that sleep anywhere from 24 to 30 people. I think there are 13 up to, I guess, 15 type rooms like that. So they're really going to be uh, limited. Um, they have a sitting room, a, a, a dinette. You see each room has a, a, a queen bed with a couple of bunk beds that are in it. There are lodges, two great lodges, uh, facilities. You sleep 48 people in each of those lodge. 12, there are four rooms, two upstairs, two downstairs. Each of them sleep like 12 uh, people. There are seven bunk houses. They'll sleep 12 people each. Uh, they don't have any facilities except for you can use the ones that are in the lodge and in those lodges there. And so, so they're kind of for the wild at heart. There are dormitories inside the lodge itself. So there's lots of places to find uh, a bed to sleep in. And so I would, you have to be a little bit flexible in some of it, but it's going to be a, a great time. We're going to have campfire devotionals. We're going to have a talent show on uh, Saturday night. And so if you've been thinking about what is my talent, then you, know, you need to, take, to talk to Jake Collins or to Jared McCormick, and they will talk to you about getting you set up to do your talent. Maybe you're a magician. Maybe you're like Zach Russell who plays a guitar. You know, those kinds of things like that. Maybe you want to sing a solo. But anyway, it's, gonna be, it's got a pavilion. It has a, um, an amphitheater up there. It will seat over 300 people. And so we'll have campfires and devotionals. It's going to be great. A lot of fun activities there's a zip line up there. There's a climbing wall. There are obstacle courses. There is basketball course. There are baseball diamonds. There is an archery area to shoot. And so that's going to be pretty cool there. Like I said, softball and zip lines. There's trails to hike on, places to just kind of get along by yourself and do some meditating and some, some uh, praying. There's also an RV park with tent sites, but the bad news is, as I mentioned this at the beginning of the year, and the RV sites had one left this morning until a person came up to me and said, I want that RV spot. And so there are no RV spots left. There are only nine of them to begin with, but there are, none of those are left. But there are five developed tent spots that you can put a tent on and five undeveloped tent spots. My point is, is that there's plenty of room for all of our congregation and then some to stay up at, at camp. And so let me encourage you to, you know, after services, or certainly between now and July, to get to the registration and fill out a registration and, and get set up to spend time up there as a congregational retreat. It's going to be a great time of focusing and being together with one another. So uh, a couple of weeks back, actually about a month back, I began a, a mini-series. And the mini-series had to do with fact or, or fiction. And now I asked you, uh, for those of you who have not been here, I asked the congregation to imagine that you were an owner of a, a bookstore, your own bookstore. Well, in any bookstore, you're going to have several categories of books. You're going to have non-fiction books, and you're going to have fictional books that are there. Fictional books are about people, places, and and events and things that are not really real. It's in the imagination of the author's mind that he comes up with those things. Sometimes they are historical fiction. It means that may center around some history, but they throw in several fictitious characters in there, and the conversations and the dialogue that they have are made up dialogues or speculation of, of dialogues. And so there is the fiction area. It's made up of mythology and, and fantasy and books like Harry Potter and those kind of things find itself in the fictional area. And then you have the non-fiction area, and the non-fiction area are, the th are books that are about real people, places, and events that really did occur in time and in space. So it's the real deal there. 
And so I asked you, you know, at the beginning, I asked you, well, where would you place Jesus? Would you place Jesus in the fiction or in the nonfiction area? And of course, we placed him in the nonfiction area, not only because of the historical record that's found within the Bible itself, but because of extra biblical people who have talked about the historicity of, of Jesus, of him being an actual person who did live on this earth, who did teach, who was crucified, a pilot condemning him to death, and then, of course, resurrected. And then last week, I talked to you about the Bible. <clears throat> Where would you place the Bible? Would you place it as fact or would you place it as fiction? Would it be in the nonfictional area of your of your bookstore or would it be in the fictitional area of your uh, store? And so I began to, you know, just kind of go through the Bible and, and kind of just talk about how amazing this book is that is sitting in your laps. Or maybe you have downloaded on an electronic device. And, and I said that, you know, when you talk about this amazing Bible, there are so many incredible things that are written uh, within it. I said to you that it's the most sold book in the world. Over 5 billion copies have been sold of this book, far outdistancing any other book. The closest to it is Mao Zedong's Little Red Book. But other than that, it just blows them all completely uh, apart. I said to you that the Bible is broken down into several sections, that it took about 1,600 years for the Bible to be written by 40 different authors. And the amazing thing about that is that kind of time and distance there, there is an amazing accuracy when it comes down to the history of the Bible or to the geography of the Bible, whether you go up or whether you're going down or whether you're going east or west or north or south. It's absolutely accurate even in those small details. And even scientifically, though it's not a science book, the Bible back in the Old Testament talks about things that science says, yeah, the real deal really is something that is, is true. So your Bible is an amazing book itself. And so I began by talking to you about just a Bible overview. I shared with you some, some interesting statistics, but then we talked about just how the Bible is broken down. And if I were to just make it in the most simplest of terms, is the Old Testament has a message that there is one that is coming that's going to save the world after the fall of man. The New Testament, especially the gospel, is one has come. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, did come into this world. And there, from Acts onward, it talks about the history of the church and what is expected of us as being followers of Jesus Christ with the promise that there is one that is coming back and to receive his church and then to take us all to heaven in the book of Revelation. So we become the winners. And so we look at this Bible overview. This morning, I want to share with you why you can have confidence in that book in your lap. And you can have confidence in the book because of two reasons. One is, that you may not think about, but one is, is because of the language in which your Bible was written. And the second is, the confidence that you can have in the Bible because of the translations that you have sitting in your lap. So when you, if you were to just start talking about just the languages of the Bible, your Bible was written in Hebrew, in Koine, and in some Aramaic. There's just a smattering of Aramaic. I gave you an example of a smatter of Aramaic when Jesus was hanging on the cross, you recall, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and that's just about it. 
In the Old Testament, there may be just a little bit more, but not a whole lot more. So primarily, your Bible in the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And your New Testament was written in Greek. Before I go any further, open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter, the very first chapter. <clears throat> 2 Peter, the first chapter. And I want you to notice what Peter says in verses 19 through uh, 21. Any of you struggling with allergies right now? <clears throat> so yesterday I did a bunch of yard work, and I was trimming a bunch of fir trees in my backyard, and those things are full of pollen, and so they've got me kind of stuffed up a little bit. Anyway, listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter 1 and verses 19 and following. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so I talked about there being 40 authors in, the, in your, your Bible. These are not men who just came up with some good things to say. These were men who were moved by the Holy Spirit, and that's why there is this continuity and this consistency that is found in your scriptures. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Let me pause for a moment and just talk to you about the New Testament, just to enter into it. Like I said, the New Testament is written in, in Koine Greek. It's an incredible language in and of itself. Some call it biblical greek others call it hellenistic greek some call it the common man's greek well why do they call it that well if you go all the way back to the fourth century and alexander the great by the age of 28 has conquered the known world it is said of alexander that he hellenized the world with the greek expansion he hellenized it and that meant that the greek culture had a lot of influence globally speaking other than say Mongolia or China, okay? But other than that, that known world was really influenced by the Greek culture. And one of the major areas that it had a huge influence was that of the language itself, or Koine Greek. It became the language of commerce. It became the language of government. If you wanted to do any kind of business in, that in, in, that, in those years, from the 4th century going forward, even into the second century, Greek is going to have a huge influence. And if you were to want to do any kind of business whatsoever, globally speaking at that day, you had to speak in Greek. It was a language of communication. That's how you got things done. The closest example I can get to that would be today's English. English today is the language of commerce. It's the language of doing business no matter where you go on the globe. If you're going to do business internationally speaking, it's going to be done in English. If you were to just break it down to, say, uh, international airports, international airports, their control towers, all those guys who work in that control tower, guess what they speak? They speak English. And guess what all the pilots speak? 
They all speak English. So if you're flying into Paris, they're not going to be speaking to you in French. They're going, those pilots in that control tower, they're going to be speaking in English. If you go to Germany, they're not going to be talking German. They're going to be speaking English. If you go to Tokyo, they're not going to be speaking Japanese. They're going to be speaking English. If you go to Beijing, China, they're not going to be speaking Chinese. They're going to be speaking English. It is the language of communication and doing business. That's just what it is. And that's how it was in, 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 in Jesus' day. That's how it was all the way back in the 4th century B.C. That's how it all happened. That language became super important. And so if you were to look at, say, this passage that is up behind me, that is what is called Greek in uncials or in the uppercase, if you will, in terms of, of English. And it's a very familiar passage of Scripture. Clint probably recognized it right off the bat. But it's John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but has everlasting life. That's what it says. And, or how about this passage here? This passage here is a very familiar passage to you. John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. I, I thought about reading that thing to you but it wouldn't have made any sense to you uh, because it's written in, in Greek. That's how people communicated in ancient days and how they were able to do business even when it came down to religion itself now a couple of weeks ago i spoke to you about the subject of baptism as i spoke to talking about baptism i said to you that the word baptism is the, the english uh, translation of the greek word baptizo or bapto or baptizomai it means to dip to submerge to dunk to to immerse, to plunge, to whelm. That's what the word means. And I said to you at that time that it's a dead language. Now, let me do some clarifying briefly about what I mean by dead language. By dead language, we're not saying that the language does not have any rele relevance to today because it's super relevant. It still speaks to us to today. What I meant by that is that it, as a language, it does not evolve. There's not an evolution that goes on in Corne Greek. It doesn't evolve in terms of definitions. It doesn't evolve in terms of adding or deleting words. It is what it is. It's written in stone, if you will, and will always be what it was. What it was in the 4th century is what it is in the 4th cent century B.C. is what it is in the 1st century A.D. is what it is today. Okay? That's what I meant by calling it a dead language. Let me talk to you just a few moments about the English language. When you talk about a dead language as opposed to a living language, modern languages would be considered to be living. For instance, a few facts about the English language. When you talk about the English language, did you know there are 1,057,379.6 words? So I thought, what is this point six words? Well, that's the word quo that someone tries to dance out in a game of Scrabble. That makes sense whatsoever, but, it, but it's a huge counter. But anyway, so there are a lot of words in the English language, most words of almost any language. And that's why it's called, it's said to be one of the most difficult languages to get a complete grasp on because you have two, two, and two, words like that that mess up your head. Well, it, this language continues to evolve. It adds and deletes words, changing definitions of some words. It's constantly evolving as a 
a language. In fact, over a thousand words are added to Webster's, um, or Merriam-Webster's dictionary every year. Every 98 minutes, a new word is added. So you have 9,488 words that are added to the English language every year. And you have about that many more that are deleted. An example of that, how words have been added or deleted is take this word here. If you test it, snollygroster. Well, that word doesn't exist anymore. If you want to call someone a snollygroster, you're going to have to find another word that talks about an unscrupulous politician. Because that's what that word used to mean. And it's talking about politicians who had no, no morals, no qualms, they were unscrupulous. That word does not exist anymore. And over 10,000 other ones don't exist anymore as, as well. Or if you talk about the change of definitions, like say the word idiot. So when you think of someone being an idiot, or you call someone an idiot, what do you mean by calling someone an idiot? Well, in the, 13th, or the 12th century, it referred to a person who was just uneducated or ignorant. It wasn't, a, it wasn't talking down at the person. It wasn't belittling them. It was simply saying this person doesn't have an education, and so he or she doesn't know about this particular subject. And what was it that Mark Twain says? He said, all of us are ignorant, except on different subjects, okay? So that's what the word meant. Then you get to the 13th century. Now it's evolved. Now it's talking about a person who's silly or stupid, stupid, an ignorant person. Or the 14th century referred to a person who is mentally deficient as to be incapable of ordinary reasoning. Okay, I'm mentally deficient. Now we come forward to the 21st century, what does the word idiot mean? Well, it's used in a much stronger way than it was back in history. Today, when you talk, say that a person is an idiot, well, it's, it's insulting. You are insulting this person. It's contempt for the person. It doesn't even line up anymore with some of the synonyms that I have mentioned, such as you're foolish or you're a schmo or you are a doofus, you're an oaf. Those, I mean, those mean they have hardly any connection with how we use a person being an idiot. Today, if you say, you know what, you're just an idiot, it means that you are, that you are I mean, it's, it's, I'm just insulting you. I'm just having contempt for who you are as an individual. So what I'm saying to you is when you talk about living languages, they're constantly evolving. There's an evolution. But when you talk about the languages of the New Testament, in Koine Greek, they don't change. They don't evolve. A dead language, uh, scholars are simply saying that the definition that is applied to the Koine Greek is a word that can never be altered. It can't be changed. It can't be redefined. It can't be modified from the original meaning uh, that it had in that culture or in that time or in that era. What it meant in the 4th century B.C. is what it meant in the 1st century A.D. is what it meant in t today. It's just, it's just there. That means that no preacher, no elder, no synod, no catechism, no pope, no general assembly, no church manual, no creed, there's not anything that can change that word. They may try to, but it's going to be their opinion. That word is like it's in stone. It can never be changed. And that's the amazing thing about your Bible. 
Your New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which means it can never be altered. It can never be modified or changed in terms of its meaning according to the culture in which we live or the era or the time. We're good to go with that language. And that's what you can say about the Old Testament as well. You say, but wait a second, Richard. You said that, that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and that's true. But you remember also I told you that, uh, that in the 4th century that Alexander the Great had conquered the, in the known world and that, he, uh, that their culture influenced the world in terms of languages? Well, back then, there were huge places, enclaves, or, or places of great education or intelligence. Places like Athens had huge libraries, or Constantinople, huge libraries. But they weren't anything compared to Alexandria of Egypt. Alexandria of Egypt, named after Alexander. And Alexandria of Egypt had one of the largest libraries in the world. And in the latter part of the 4th century, moving into the 5th century, seven Jewish men who were highly trained and educated in both Hebrew and Greek got together and they decided to translate the Hebrew language of the Old Testament into Koine Greek. It's called the Septuagint or the LXX or 70 for the 70 scholars, but it's the Septuagint. And in the first, you know, in the fourth, latter part of the fourth century, they did the, the, the Pentateuch that we talked about last week. And then over the last week, and then over the years, they would do the rest of the Old Testament. It'd take them a number of years to get that done. But by the time they were done, guess what you have? You have the Old Testament now that is locked in history. Like the New Testament that was written in Koine Greek, the Old Testament now has been translated into. Koine Greek, which means the Old Testament cannot be altered, modified, or changed in definition. Now, there's some other nuances that, you know, we don't have time to get into it, but you get the idea of what I'm saying. That's what makes your Bible so amazing. You can't change the thing, Old Testament or New Testament. And I think it's by God's providence that it came down that way. So we have, uh, you can have confidence in that Bible that sits in your lap, that it's not going to change according to our culture or according to the dictates of some man somewhere. But then you come to this next thing, and that's translations. And translations, well, translations, they are living modern languages, okay? So by translation, we are, we're talking about translating the original Koine Greek or the Hebrew into another language. In our case, it would be the English language. And so the question would be, well, why do we need, need English languages? Why do we need translations, new translations in the English language? And the answer is, is that most of us can't read Greek. Most of us can't read Hebrew. So we depend on other scholars to do that and so you have people who come together who write translations, committee trans committees that come together, so they come from different walks and denominations who are Greek scholars. You have just men who are Greek scholars as a science. Uh, they don't care one whit about God or one whit about your Bible, but their, but their education is in Greek, and so they hold their stickers about holding to the original meaning of that word. And so then you bring in a bunch of Christian, quote, Christian scholars and guys who are secular scholars, and they check and balance one another. 
and they translate your Bible word for word from Koine Greek into the English language. And that's been going on since, actually it probably goes back to the 7th century but, uh, BC, but all the way forward to today where you have translations taking taking place. And up behind me, you see an example of all the translations. You have the New Ameri you have the American Standard, you have the New American Standard, you have the King James, the New King James, you have the English Standard Version, you have the Revised Standard Version, you have the... There's a lot of them that are out there in terms of translations. So why is there a need for translations? Well, it's to meet the common, the constant evolving of the English language or modern language in order so it can communicate truth to you. For instance, if you were to take the King James language that was written back in 1611, authorized by King James I, okay, um, they translated it into English, but they translated it into the English or the vernacular of that day. So if I were to ask you, Nolan, how's your communication doing today? What would you say? Well, Nolan, because I know him so well, would say, it means that I am articulating the English language very well. I'm talking with you. But back in the King James day, if you were to say, and read that word, how's your communication? It didn't talk about how are you talking. It meant, how are you doing? How's life going? How's your walk going? So languages have to be changed, or translated have to be changed in order to communicate to us in ways that we understand uh, today. The first, probably, translation happened in the 4th century, okay? And on into the 5th century, and that's when a guy by the name of Jerome, who was a governor over a monastery in, in Bethlehem, was commissioned. And he was commissioned by, a, I think, Pope Damascus I to translate the Bible from Greek into Latin. And it became known as the Latin Vulgate, or the Vulgate Bible, or the Latin Vulgate Bible. Have you guys heard this term here, that the Bible at one time was chained to pulpits? What well, it didn't mean it is literally chained, like my Bible was chained to a pulpit. What it meant was, is that the Bible was written in Latin. And only the educated could read Latin. And the Catholic priest could read Latin, but the rest of the common people could not read Latin. They're dead in the water. So the only way that a, a person could come to a, a knowledge of any truth from the Scripture it had to come from the Catholic priest who could read Latin and speak Latin, and the educated, but the masses could not. So you got a problem. And that goes on for a lot of years. That goes on for over 10,000, almost 1,000 years almost and, until you get to the English languages that start to come out. And these English languages did not come easily. There was a lot of bloodletting as you move from going from Latin into English languages because the Catholic Church didn't want to lose control of the church. Because the Catholic Church, the Bible is not the authority. The papacy is the authority. The church is the authority. But then you have guys like John Wycliffe come along. And John Wycliffe once was a Catholic priest. He was a professor at Oxford University in languages and so forth. But he becomes discontent with the Catholic Church and its teachings, and he begins to challenge them on those things. And so what he does is he's looking at the Scriptures, and he's saying the Scriptures are the authority, not the papacy. And so he decides to translate the Bible from Greek and Latin into English. And that was a big no-no. I mean, that got him into all kinds of, of problems. He was branded as a heretic, heresy, for doing so. He will die of natural causes. Um, but after his death, posthumously, 
the Catholic Church will excommunicate him. And the, he is buried in a churchyard, and they say, well, you know what? The guy's a heretic, and so they dig him up out of the churchyard. They exhume his body. And then they burn his body to ashes and take his ashes and scatter them over the river Swift to show disdain for what Wycliffe had done by giving the common man an English Bible. And that goes on for like 140 years. No one's messing with English Bibles anymore because this is what happens to guys like that. Until this guy, William Tyndale, comes along. And William Tyndale, he is a reformer. And so he decides that he is going to translate the Bible. And he does almost the whole entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, he translated it into English. But he, too, falls in disrepute. And he is strongly persecuted for doing so. Some of his problem was that he got into it with Henry VIII. Henry VIII wanted to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon and married uh, Anne Boleyn. And, and Wycliffe says, now you can't do that. You don't have biblical grounds for doing that. And so Henry VIII wanted his head. So the dude had, has to leave England and go to Europe, where he's in Congress by the Catholic emperor at that time, not the pope, but the emperor at that, that time. And they jail him. And eventually, because he is a heretic, they will kill him by strangulation and then burn him to the stake, at the stake. End of William Tyndale. But then you start to have Bibles come along after that. Another hundred years almost until King James gets into a row with the Catholic Church once again. And so he decides to translate the Bible. So he gets together 47 scholars that are Greek scholars and Latin scholars, and he has them translate. It takes him seven years to do it, but he translates the Bible into, into English. And that became the mainstay for a lot of years. I love the King James Version, by the way. I use it when I go to Africa, almost predominantly when I go there. It's incredible. But then you start having languages, uh, translations come along the line. The American Standard came along in 1901, probably the most accurate of all of them. It's a word-for-word -word translation. But man, if you've ever tried to memorize that thing, it's almost impossible because it's what they call stilted. I mean, it's word-for-word, word, not a lot of flow. Lockman Foundation came up with the New American Standard, which is the one that Paul the Apostle used. And, but, the, but the New American Standard was a translation, a really very good translation itself. And then you have other translations that come down the pike, word-for-word word translation. When you say word-for-word, word, it's like, here's the, the Greek language, and here are the words that meet it. And so they try to do a word-for-word word translation, and they're very accurate Bibles. The New American Standard, the New King James, the English Standard Version, those are word for words. Then you have thought for thought translations. Thought for thought translations are like the New Living Translation or uh, the, the New International Version. They're not word for word translations. They're not paraphrases. They're a thought for thought translation. A thought for thought says Greek scholars got together. They read the, the Greek, say, sentence. They read the Greek sentence. And then he, they say, here's what that says in English terms. They, just, they don't do word for word. It says, here's the, the gist. Here's the intent of that passage. And then you have paraphrases, and paraphrases are just that. Some dude comes along, some man comes along, and he simply reads the English translation and then tells you what he thinks that English translation says. So the strongest translations actually are the word for word. But I will say this, that all of them will get you to heaven and tell you about Jesus. So here's a couple examples of how John 3.16 is changed from the New American Standard to the New Living Translation to the message. And so you have a word for word, and you have a thought for thought, and then you have a paraphrase. And so you can read those without me having to 
pay them for you. Okay, so I'm going to end this thing by just saying that your Bible is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you think about the languages, when you think about the translations of men who are scholars who love the word and have given you a Bible that sits in your lap that is absolutely, absolutely incredible when you think about it. It's meant to be open, to be explored, to be pursued. It's made to be read and reread and applied and used. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of, of God. With wisdom, life changing, it leads us on. It's made for guidance to teach us about God's ways, to show us what's true, what's right, and worthy of praise. It's meant to be hidden deep within our hearts. It's to be da daily examined as the morning starts. No greater glimpse of, of God do we have. A lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's your Bible. It's an amazing, it's an amazing book. And you can have so much confidence in it. Because it's historically, it's geographically, it's, it's scientifically, and it's linguistically accurate. And you can read it, and it will change your life. I love the way the Lord's brother James put it. He says, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. It's God's mind, his intentions of what he wants for us, and that is he wants to spend eternity with us. And it's incredible that he's given it to us. He's given it to us to spread throughout the world to tell them the saving message of Jesus. He's given it to us to change us so that when we get to heaven, we're not going to feel just out of place. We'll know why we're there and what we're there about. And he'll bring us salvation. He'll help, tells us what to do to be saved. So this morning, I really want to encourage you to really consider this incredible, amazing book that's in your lap or on your electronic device. And if you need to respond in whatever way you need to do so this morning, want you to do so at this time while together we stand and sing and give you opportunity.